He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Happy Easter. I'm going to ask that you would turn and give the person next to you a fist bump and say, Happy Easter, one more time. This Easter sermon is the last in a sermon series that has been entitled Awaken. The next sermon series is actually going to be entitled Rise Up. Rise Up is going to be all about what it looks like after we encounter the resurrected Christ and what it means for him to be active in and through our hearts and our lives. So I want to encourage you, be here next Sunday morning as we begin that new sermon series. The Awaken series was based upon a scripture that we pulled from the prior series from the book of Ephesians that talked about, this is why it, it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This morning, this message is all about, this sermon is focused on the idea of awaken Easter. Awaken Easter. Now, here's what I want to say, and it's not a disclaimer. I just want us to all be on the same page. And it's this. The sermon that I'm going to bring is going to be taken from the book of Luke. There are four gospels in the Newer Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of the four, only two mention Christmas. But of the four, almost half of each of the Gospels is about Easter. Easter is the epicenter of the Christian faith. I know you may love Christmas, but you would have never heard of Christmas had it not been for Easter. The other disclaimer is this, is that I'm going to be using the Gospel of Luke, and Luke was written to educated Greeks. And so my sermon is gonna be one that is positioned to give you some things to think about. Whether you are here again for the first time, as was mentioned early in our, in our service, or you've been here for the hundredth time, this sermon is going to be a message that will stimulate your mind. One of the greatest preachers of the last century was a powerful man that preached incredible sermons. And he said this about a sermon. It should stimulate your mind. It should stir your heart. And it should tan your hide. <laughs> now, as I move towards tanning your hides, <laughs> what I want to say is, is that this message will focus on a relationship from the Gospel of Luke that involves Jesus and Peter. It'll involve Jesus and Peter. Why? Because the Christian faith is relational. It's all about relationships, about a relationship with God through Christ, and it's about relationships with people. But again, this message will be one that will be there to stimulate your mind to give you something to consider, something to think about. Now, what I'm going to talk about next could be viewed as accurately an oversimplification 
of some very difficult concepts. I am well aware of that. But one of my biblical heroes, a man that I've studied a ton, is a professor by the name of Kenneth Bailey. For over 40 years, he taught on biblical culture and what the context was actually right in which the Newer Testament was written. Kenneth Bailey brings out in one of his books, and I came across it as I was moving towards Easter. And what Kenneth Bailey was talking about was that he talked about that there are three dominant views that he wanted people to consider in conjunction with Easter. The first view is this. It's called the watchmaker view. It's a view in which there is no grand narrative. The definition of this view will be up on the screen. And it goes something like this. The watchmaker view is something along the lines of, if there is a God, that God is like a watchmaker who winds it up and leaves it on the table to run down gradually. Yes, there may be a God, but that God has nothing to do, nothing at all to do with nature or history. The sun is gradually becoming colder, and life will finally end on earth, and the struggles through which human history passes have no meaning because there is no meta-narrative to give it direction and purpose. In his writing, Professor Kenneth Bailey talks about how Macbeth brings out in the play in Act 5 and Scene 5 about an ideology or a belief or a view of life that is so clearly portrayed through Macbeth. And since every time I've ever seen anyone do Shakespeare, they wear a goofy hat, I'm going to do the same. Here's what Macbeth says. All our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Thank you. The second one, the second view is a view that was around during the time of Jesus. Kenneth Bailey tells us this. This second view is a Greek view, and it's about another view which promoted at the time of Jesus by Greek philosophy, which understood history as a series of events moving in circles. What happened before will happen again. It may require thousands of years, but history repeats itself. As we live out our lives, we are simply reenacting an old drama that has already appeared on the world stage and will one day reappear. In other words, our lives may be full of the sound of fury, but yet it signifies nothing. Then, thank God, there's a third view. 
The third view moves directly towards the resurrection. But in the third view, it is an Old and New Testament view. And here's what that view is. Both the Older and Newer Testaments have a perspective of a view of history to be like an arrow that moves towards a target called the Day of the Lord or the Kingdom of God. In this view, history has direction and meaning. Caught up in the struggles of the present age, the faithful may not always be able to see the big picture, but there is one. There is one. In other words, the Older and Newer Testaments bring to us the idea of that history and life has a trajectory. And that trajectory is often called a meta-narrative, a big story. The idea is, is that history and the present and the future are connected. And there's a trajectory to this story. Well, both the Older and the Newer Testaments tell us that at the end of all things, when time wraps itself up, there will be what is called the Day of the Lord, and it will be the fulfillment of what, it is, what is called the Kingdom of God. Now, here's what I want to share about this. The Bible does speak clearly about the end of time and the end of history. Again, it's known as the day of the Lord or the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. At that time, the record is clear, the scriptural record is clear that there will be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. Funny enough though, there are times in the Older Testament where people are praying for God's judgment. Do you wanna know why? Because on the great day of the Lord, when the kingdom of God reaches its fulfillment, what we're going to discover is that in that moment, God will right every wrong. Everything that is wrong will be made right. And not only this, but God will make all things new. So will there be a judgment? Yes. The Bible also teaches us that if there's going to be a judgment, there will be a time where sin must be accounted for. The God who is perfectly holy at some point in the future will gather all of history, all of creation, and all of the people from within that creation, and all will stand before the throne of judgment. And in that moment, the truth will be known. The integrity of heart will be known. And God who judges all things truthfully will know the truth. But it also can be said of this, that in order for that judgment to happen, there must be what's called the resurrection. Because you see, on that day, the Bible is clear in Older and Newer Testaments that on that day, all who have lived will be gathered together and they'll be brought to life and the Bible has this phrase called resurrection. It's where all who have lived will be brought back to life and will stand before a living God. What I wanna talk about this morning 
is how Easter stands in the center of that day. Easter stands in the middle of the great day of the Lord. Easter stands in the middle of that judgment. And I want to explain Easter through that lens. And again, I'm going to be utilizing Jesus and the Apostle Peter. Now, in order to do that, what I am aware of is that people are here for many different reasons. I'd ask for a show of hands, but I won't. Some of you are here because Easter is something that excites you. Some of you are here because a friend invited you. By the way, all of these are awesome reasons. Some of you are here out of habit, and you're here again. Others of you are here because you have an aunt and an uncle who are going to check on you tomorrow morning and ask if you went to church. How many of you guilty as charged? Here's what I would recommend. If that is you, the last category, what I would recommend is, is that you would take a selfie of yourself with the City Church logo in the background and you would send it to your aunt and uncle before they even text you. So I've given you an example of what it could look like just to help you along. So where we're at is Jesus in Peter. The Apostle Peter is the most famous Peter that ever lived. He is my namesake. My name is Peter as well. Well, out of a moment of insecurity, I googled my own name to find out how popular I am. And I found the following picture of myself. I want you to see it. That is the most famous Peter Hartwig alive. Actually, it is a picture of me. I just been on a diet lately. That's all. But you see, the Peter of Scripture is the namesake of all of us. And you would think at the outset, if he's such a big character in the Bible, and maybe you've never read the Newer Testament, you don't know anything about the Apostle Peter, maybe you have heard of him. But we're going to process through Peter and his relationship with Jesus. And we're going to take an in-depth look at what Easter is in the context of the meta-narrative of God that history and life have a trajectory towards that day. Now, as we look at this, what I want to be clear about is that Jesus as Pastor Keith prayed or announced to us that Jesus chose to go to the cross. We're gonna pick up our story in the Gospel of Luke. And as we pick up our story, I wanna do it because in chapter nine of the Gospel of Luke, well before halfway through the Gospel, and Luke is the longest of the Gospels, Jesus makes this announcement. It says this, and Jesus said, the Son of Man, that's how he references himself. Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Jesus makes this announcement 
And one of the other gospels tells us that when Jesus makes that announcement, the apostle Peter hears it. And when he hears it, he confronts Jesus and says, no way, Jose, never, not you, not going to happen. I won't let that happen. And Jesus said, Peter, it must to fulfill scripture. For the Older Testament, that ancient history that looks to the future of the great day of the Lord, that ancient Old Testament writings points to Jesus and announces that he must suffer. And Jesus says to Peter, for Scripture to be fulfilled. And then Peter, in a moment of vibrato, says to him, Jesus, if you go and die, I'm going to die with you. And Jesus says... No, you won't. Not only will you not die with me, you will deny you've ever known me three times. As we look deeper into our scripture, what we find is, is that right after Jesus announces in 922 that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and on the third day raised to life, there's this incredible experience that is had. That experience is called the transfiguration. I want you to read it with me from the large screen. Luke 9, 28 to 31. Here's what scripture says about eight days after Jesus said this. Eight days after Jesus said, hey look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die and on the third day be raised to life. It says about eight days after he said this, Jesus took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. You see, what we see in the transfiguration is many things, but the thing that I want us to get a hold of is when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, Moses appears, Elijah appears, and they hold a conversation with Jesus, and here's what's happening. History is now conversing with Jesus. Moses, who brings the law of God, which is the center of following God in the Older Testament, and Elijah, who's the ultimate prophet of the Older Testament, they join with Jesus and they begin to talk with him about what he's going to do next. You see, history past is on a trajectory and that trajectory finds its connection in Jesus. And there is Moses and Elijah and they're speaking on the mountain. But the scripture tells us that they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That word departure is the word exodus. It's a reference that Jesus, just like Moses, is going to begin to take a journey, and in that exodus, he's going to set people free. And then if you were to read on in the Gospel of Luke, right at the end of this episode, the Gospel tells us that while he was speaking, Jesus was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were all afraid as they entered the cloud. But a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son 
whom I have chosen, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found Jesus was alone. See, we have to understand that in Christ and his movement towards Jerusalem, that history meets with Jesus and they speak about what's coming next. Then as we read on, what we find is, is that Jesus again at the end of Luke chapter 9 makes a definitive statement or a definitive move and it says at, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So from the end of Luke chapter 9 on all the way to the end of the book, Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem to fulfill what he has referenced. Well, what we discover is, is that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he is arrested, he is falsely accused, the abuse begins, he finds himself in a kangaroo court in the middle of the night with trumped up charges, people that have been paid to witness against him. And there he is in Pilate's court and he is announced as guilty. As Jesus exits that, what we find in the Gospel of Luke is absolutely stunning. As Jesus exits his kangaroo court, he moves into the courtyard, and as he does, something happens. It involves Peter. You see, Peter has followed Jesus from a distance. He's taken further and further steps behind him. And as Jesus is in that kangaroo court, Peter is in the courtyard and he is warming himself around a barrel and two times prior, someone comes up to him and says, I know you, you were with Jesus, I've seen you with him and he denies it both times. And then there's a third time. And we pick up our reading in Luke 22, verses 60 to 62. Someone comes to Peter and confronts him a third time. And Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Jesus had told him that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And the Bible tells us, picture this, that in that moment of the third denial, the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. I have no clue what went on in Peter's mind and heart, but he had betrayed his friend, the man he said that he would die with. And the next thing that we find in the resurrection story begins with the cross. There's the cross, there's the grave, and there's the resurrection. And now we find ourselves at the cross, and it's interesting to take note that the cross was so painful that Greek culture comes up with a new word to describe it. And the word is excruciating. X out of, cruciating, out of the crucifix, out of the cross. And Jesus goes through that cross and he experiences the pain and the suffering. Now, 
When we think of the cross, we also must think about what does history in the Bible have to say about the cross? If all of history and all of action is moving in and through Jesus, what does the Older Testament tell us about the cross? We pick up a reading in Isaiah chapter 53 written four or 700 years before Jesus was born. Here's what Isaiah writes. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we discover is that history has been forecasting this event and saying it's coming, it's coming, and now it's here. And we can see in Isaiah 53 the announcement of Christ and what he's going through. But notice what Isaiah 53 says. Jesus is not on the cross for his sin. He's on the cross for ours. And that the Lord God lays on him the iniquity of us all. While Jesus is on the cross, Jesus says two things to God the Father. They're important for us to know. The first one, Jesus says to his Father, Father, said Jesus, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And in the faith of the Older Testament, it is one thing for you to say, I forgive you. But it's a complete forgiveness when you ask God to forgive that person instead of judge them. And so Jesus on the cross is not only forgiving, but he says to his heavenly father, would you please forgive them as well? On that great day of judgment, on the final day of the Lord, God, please do not hold that against them. And then the last thing, Jesus says to his father while on the cross, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. What's incredible to consider is that Jesus, according to the book of Isaiah, is on the cross and he is burying and carrying and doing all of the things that sin would require on that great day of judgment that would happen in the future. Now Jesus is taking that upon himself. And as he does, he still announces his trust in his heavenly father. Later on, 40 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the apostle Peter would write, he would write, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in spirit. You see, the apostle Peter was not there. He had fled from Jesus. He never saw what happened on the cross. But four decades later, he writes in his book in the Newer Testament in 1 Peter, his view of the cross. The Apostle Paul also speaks of the cross. 
And I love what he writes. He said, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Well, from the cross, we move to the grave. As we move to the grave, what we discover is, is that the book of Isaiah tells us again that history is being fulfilled. Because Isaiah shares so clearly in Isaiah 53, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. As we move towards the grave and we consider it again, the scripture tells us that history has now caught up with itself in Jesus. What had been forecast 700 years earlier is now happening real time. And then the Bible tells us the apostle Peter would have never known this because he was not there. But the Bible tells us that there were women who had come with Jesus from Galilee and they followed Joseph. Well, who is Joseph? Joseph is a rich man who went to Pilate and requested Jesus' body, and Pilate gave it to him. Joseph took the body and placed it in his own tomb, and so these women followed Joseph and saw the tomb, and his body was laid in it. Then they went back to prepare spices and ointments, and on the Sabbath they rested, as the commandment specified. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. Why is this so important for us to understand before we get to the re resurrection? And it's this, the most faithful followers of Jesus were women. They were women. They were faithful. They followed him to the bitter, bitter end. But even they didn't believe he would be raised. They didn't believe him. They showed up with spices to embalm a body. They did not show up to greet a resurrected Christ. And as we look at the resurrection before we close, we read about the resurrection event in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. And here's what the scripture says. I want you to read it with me. It says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, Notice that the women took the spices they prepared and they went to the tomb. They're looking for a dead body. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised to life. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others with them who told this to the apostles 
but they did not believe the women. Now, let me push the pause button, men. Believe the women. Let's jump back in. But they did not, you're welcome, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. And bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by, the cell, by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Can you imagine? After all Jesus had said to Peter, after all that Jesus had taught Peter, Peter looks into the tomb and he leaves scratching his head. Peter's wondering. Well, let me explain to Peter what has happened. What has happened is this, is that history is now fulfilled in Jesus. Now, the resurrection changes everything. Because the scripture tells us in the Older and the Newer Testaments that at the end of time and at the end of all things, there will be judgment on sin. That sin will have to be reckoned for. Sin will have to be accounted for. But you see, God with his love and his grace and his mercy reaches down into history. And through Christ, he reaches in ahead of time. Ahead of time, he reaches in through Jesus. And now the judgment that is coming is found on Jesus. And the payment of sin that was going to have to be paid is now found paid in Jesus. And what we find is, is that the future is now looking back to Jesus. And history is looking towards Jesus. And we find there in the resurrection that all the stuff that God will deal with on that day has now been dealt with in Christ. Dysfunction and shame and guilt and brokenness and all of the things that sin brings has now been fulfilled in Jesus. The Apostle Paul would write this. I'm sorry, Peter would write this. He would write, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter looks back at the resurrection, something he was not there for because he abandoned Jesus, something he scratched his head over. He says, in his, meaning God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, fate. When we look at this story, how do we put feet to our faith? What I want to tell you is this. The resurrection is the most underplayed event of Jesus' life. At his birth, angels show up and there's a light show and a choir. At his baptism, God cheers from heaven. At the transfiguration, God cheers from heaven. When he's resurrected, it is so understated and so underplayed. Do you want to know why? Because if it's true, you're never going to stop it. It doesn't need marketing. 
It doesn't need light shows. It doesn't need choirs of angels. All it needs is two women. That's all it needs. Women and amen goes there. All it needs is two women. Here's what is the reality of Scripture. That history finds its fulfillment in the resurrection of Christ. The Older Testament looks towards Jesus. The Newer Testament looks back at Jesus in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. You see, the resurrection is the point. Now, oftentimes, in Easter sermons, there's a lot of cheering and shouting right now. But you know what? That's not what happens in the New Testament. It isn't. People are left to ponder and to think and to process and to absorb what has happened. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. And as we stand together, we're going to conclude our time. And as we do, would you by faith accept Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as being done personally for you? Peter eventually comes to that place where he encounters the resurrected Christ. My question is, what about you and me? Do we believe that history through Isaiah speaks to the cross? It's my sin and your sin. We believe as we look at the Newer Testament, it looks back to the death, burial, and resurrection and says this is the point. That the great day of the Lord and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God has now been accomplished in Christ. And whoever finds themselves in him will be hidden in Christ. And the way Peter puts it, we now have an inheritance that will carry us into the future that will never, ever spoil or fade. You see, Jesus now stands resurrected and death is defeated and sin is forgiven and there's hope for all of us. We're going to take a moment to close our eyes but open our hearts. If you're an individual who's been looking at the resurrection, you've been looking at Jesus, and you believe that it's time for you to open up your heart and to open up your life to Jesus through faith, I want to encourage you right now to pray a prayer that would go something like this. Jesus, I don't know all there is to know about who you are. But Jesus, it's comforting to know that Peter wrestled and struggled as well. Lord, in the midst of this resurrection morning, I pray, Jesus, that you would touch my heart and that you would touch my life. That my history, past, present, and future, would now be found in Christ, forgiven and cleansed. Jesus, I ask that you would touch me right where I am. God, what I have to offer to you in Christ is my faith and my hope and my trust. 
Lord, now I pray for all of us, but specifically those of us who are struggling in this life. I pray that you would, by your grace, allow us to believe and receive that history has a trajectory and there is a meta-narrative and that God is a God who has worked through history, through Christ, and now in and through us. And I pray this and believe for it. In Jesus' name, in Christ's name, amen. Let's worship together.